Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> you know, there are some topics out there that are just so complex and complicated that it is hard for us to understand. For me, that physics is like that. If I read an article somewhere about something about physics, I, I'm lost. Like, why do certain things work the way they do? How does gravity work? Why are some particles attracted to one another and others are not? All that stuff is beyond me. And I know the engineers and science teachers in the room probably get all that, but I don't. And sometimes I wish I could like take a 101 class and someone start from the beginning and explain that stuff to me. And there's several topics like that for me. And maybe you've thought of things too that you just love to know about this topic and the only way that could really happen is if someone started from the beginning and explained it. And I think sometimes when we think about God, God is so out there and nebulous and, and I don't get Him, we sort of wish someone would start from the beginning. And even though we know we can't understand everything about God, that's just beyond us, we could still start from the beginning and explain what God is all about, what he's trying to do and who he is. Maybe if you're sort of new to church, you're even thinking, I feel like I've walked in on a conversation that people have been having for a long time, and I don't know what's going on. And in some ways it is that way, because sermons are like a conversation with the church, and we might refer to something we talked about last week or the week before or even months ago, and you might not have been there. And so you're picking up in the middle. So for the next few weeks, I'd like for us to just back up and in some ways start from the beginning and begin to explain who God is, what he wants from us, how he wants to relate to us. And we're going to do that by turning to the book of Exodus. And maybe you think, well, it seems like we should start at the very beginning. Like Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Exodus is the second book. Why don't we start in Genesis? That's where creation happens. God begins to talk to people, all that stuff. Or maybe we could go to the Gospels and hear about the story of Jesus. Maybe Matthew or Mark would be a good place to start. And in truth, either of those would be fine. Here's why I chose Exodus. Because in Exodus, though God has talked to people and related to people, in Exodus, God begins to open up the door to who he is in ways that he had not before then. God began to show the people of Israel what he expected of them in ways that they had not seen before. We begin to see a picture of God that just isn't present even in Genesis. And since we worship this same God that was present in the book of Exodus, I think there are lessons there for us to learn and then think about, okay, now that we know this about God, what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ as Christians? So that's what we're going to do. And today we're going to begin in just a couple minutes in Exodus chapter 3. You'll notice that the Bibles are out in the pews again. If you want to use one of those, welcome to do that or your phone or read it off the screen, whatever's convenient. But Exodus is the, the second book in the Bible if you want to turn to Exodus 3. You know, when, when we want to introduce someone, whether it's up front in a public setting or maybe even just in a conversation, it's hard to know exactly what to say, right? I mean, how do you describe a person to another person? You don't want to say too much and give too much information that bores this other person, but you want to give enough so they know the basics. And even though we might do a really good job of introducing someone, and knowing facts about a person is not the same as knowing a person, is it? And so for the next few weeks, I feel like in some ways I'm, I'm trying to introduce 
who God is. Now, you may have known God for a very long time, but let's say you haven't. What do we need to say that's most appropriate? And, and what do we need to say that God says? Because if we're introducing, we want to know more than just the facts. We want to know God, and we do that by hearing what He says and what He does, and then developing a relationship with God. So it has to work through studying Scripture, but also through prayer. So let's involve all those things, hearing from God and also speaking to God over the next few weeks as we introduce God in this series, God 101. Now, in some ways, Exodus picks up in the middle of a story. And it's the story of the people of Israel. And the thumbnail sketch, so you're up to speed with where this story begins, is that God has spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel and is the father of the nation of Israel. That all happens in the book of Genesis. uh, Jacob has 12 sons, and they all end up in Egypt because the land in which they were living had a famine. There's no food. There is food in Egypt. Jacob's son uh, Joseph is ruling some of that. You can read all that story at the end of Genesis. But to make it simple, this family moves to Egypt for food. Now when they get there, they're a big family, but compared with the nation of Egypt, they're a small group. But this family grows. And over decades and many years, this family becomes a very large group to the point that the people of Egypt become afraid of the people of Israel because they are so numerous. To keep, that, keep them under control, the Egyptians enslave the Israelites. They do the work in the nation of Egypt, and they're still afraid. And so Pharaoh, the king, resorts to what so many rulers have throughout history, genocide. He says, every male child born in the nation of Israel is to be thrown into the Nile River, is to be killed. Well, there's a woman who has a son. It's her third child. And of course, she's afraid for the life of this son, like every other Israelite woman would have been afraid in that day. And so she weaves a basket, and she coats that basket with tar so it's watertight. She lays her baby in that basket and hides the basket in the reeds of the Nile River. And she has her daughter Miriam watch that baby. But the basket is found by an Egyptian. But thankfully, it's not a soldier. It's not a man. It's one of Pharaoh's daughters, a princess. She finds the baby, assumes that he's been abandoned, takes him as her own. In fact, because this girl is there, she invites this child's sister into the home to care for this baby. And she names him. She gives him an Egyptian name that will carry through the rest of his life, Moses. And there's the beginning of the story of Moses. Moses is raised in the palace with Pharaoh's sons and daughters, the princes and princesses of the land. But he knows who he is. He knows he's an Israelite. And once he becomes an adult, he sees one of the other Israelites being abused by his Egyptian master. And Moses ends up killing this Egyptian and burying him in the sand. He thinks he's gotten away with it, but it isn't long before he realizes that he's been found out. There were witnesses, and so he flees Egypt and goes to this outpost of civilization called Midian. And he stays there. He meets up with a man named Jethro, marries Jethro's daughter, and follows in Jethro's business, which is shepherding. And so he's watching Jethro's sheep, and he does this for decades, hiding out from what he did in Egypt. And that becomes his home. 
And one day, as he's watching the sheep, he carries them to the far side of the desert, to the land, to, the mount, to Mount Horeb, the, the mountain of God, the mountain that we know later on as Sinai. And there he witnesses this iconic event, the burning bush. This bush that is on fire, but the leaves don't shrivel up. They don't turn brown. They're just green. The branches stay there. It's not being consumed. It's on fire, but not burning up. And Moses does what most of us would have done. He goes over to investigate. And that's where our story really picks up. Because in that moment, God spoke to Moses, called him by name, and Moses said, here am I. And then God begins to talk about what he wants in Moses' life. We get that in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now the ground is not holy. It's only holy because God is present. This has become holy ground. Then God said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, this is how the Israelites knew of God. He was the God of their fathers. The God of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, Israel. This was their God. This is the stories they knew about God talking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew all of this stuff. And this was their God. And so Moses knows he's talking to the God of Israel. And he's so afraid in this moment because he's in the presence of God and he hid his face. We're going to see a little change in Moses' attitude pretty quickly. But at this point, Moses is afraid. And God says, listen, I've seen the suffering of my people. They need salvation. And here's what I'm going to do. Verse 8. So I've come down, God says, I've come down to rescue. I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where they're going to want to be. And then we have this list of nations The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. Go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now the first part of that I'm sure Moses was glad to hear. Moses had witnessed the Egyptians abusing the people of Israel. He knew that was happening. And surely the people had been praying that God would act, and now God has seen that. He's recognized their suffering, and He has said, I'm going to act. I'm going to bring salvation. I'm going to free them from the people of Egypt, and I'm going to make them into a nation. And I'm sure Moses is going, awesome. That is just what I wanted, God. And then God says, and I'm sending you to do it. Now, no one's done this kind of work before, not among the people of Israel. How do you just go and tell Pharaoh, we're leaving? How does that happen? And I'm sure Moses was wondering a lot of things. And in fact, what we find is that the man who in one moment is hiding his face from God, in the very next moment, has all kinds of objections to God's plan. In fact, there are seven objections that Moses gives to God's plan. And we're going to cover all those today. But the first two we are going to cover. 
And Moses becomes pretty bold in how he speaks to God now that God's come up with this plan to save his people. And Moses begins with two questions, and they're very simple. The first question is this, who am I? God, who am I to do this? Verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I mean, God, what's so special about me? Why would you choose me? I've been away from there for 40 years. It may be that no one even remembers who I am. Who am I to go back there and lead the people out of slavery? What is special about me that you would have chosen me, God? Why would that happen? And in fact, Moses was. I mean, he could have said, God, I'm... I'm ready to retire, right? I'm ready to draw Social Security, move to Florida. I'm done. But God really didn't care. This is what God says. He doesn't exactly answer Moses' question. He just says this. I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. He doesn't say, Moses, the reason I've chosen you is because I've identified these six characteristics that will make you ideal for leadership among my people. He doesn't say, I've done a personality profile and these things that I've discovered are exactly what we need in a leader. He doesn't say it's your experience, it's your character. He just says, I'll be with you. And he doesn't even explain that. He doesn't say, I'm going to show my presence in this way. He doesn't say, I'm going to strengthen you, empower you, guide you. He just says, I will be with you. And when you come back to the same mountain and the people of Israel are surrounding you and you are worshiping God, you're going to be reminded of this moment. That's going to be a sign that I've been with you all the way through. Moses says, okay. Question one, who am I? Question two, then, who are you? Who are you, God? Verse 13, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? See, the gods of the ancient world had a, a personal name, a name. They'd only known God as the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew God by the stories. They knew God by what he had done in the past. But they did not have a personal name for God like all the other peoples did. And so Moses knows if he goes to the people of Israel and says, the God of our fathers has called me to lead you out of Egypt, they're going to say, which God? We want to know more about this God of whom you speak. Maybe even Moses being confronted with this mission that God has just called him to perform, this call on his life to do something, maybe he's thinking, I want to know a little bit more about who you are. You see, in the ancient world, if you knew someone's name, you knew their identity more clearly. There was an intimacy that you didn't have before, and there was even a little bit of control. Even we feel a little awkward when we're talking to someone and we don't know their name. When we know their name, it's like there's a connection that we didn't have before. And Moses is longing for that connection 
with God. So God, who are you? What is in this name? What's in a name? That's a question that Juliet asked in Romeo and Juliet. What's in a name? Romeo would be just as attractive a young man if his name were Arthur. It doesn't matter what we call him, except his name was Romeo Montague. And the Montagues were in this grand feud with the Capulets, and that's her family. And she can say what's in a name, but this feud, his name and her name, dictate the rest of the story that ends in tragedy. What's in a name? It matters. And so God answers that question with these words that we find in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Well, that clears it right up, doesn't it? Who is this Sam I am God? What are you talking about here? When we see that, we see that in most of our English translations, the words I am who I am, and then later on I am in that verse are in all caps, small caps, something like that. And they signify, they're sort of a pointer to the Hebrew, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But it all is about God saying, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. I'm God and I'm the God you got is basically what God is saying here. This is who I am. You can call me I am. I am present, I am active, and I always will be. And I'll be the same God from now on. And then he expands on that a little bit more. And this is sort of a long reading. So hear it out and we'll take it apart a little bit. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, and again you'll notice it's in all caps, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, this is the same God, okay, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is it. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. This name, the Lord. It's in all caps in English. And when we see that, it points to a specific word in Hebrew. Now in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, there was no signifying vowels. It was only consonants. And so the the four letters that are there, the four consonants are Y-H-W-H. Probably pronounced something like Yahweh. Some of the older translations might have Jehovah, but the scholars have sort of, after study, decided that's probably not accurate. So it's probably Yahweh, which, if it's translated just basically means closely related to I am. God says who I am is is that I'm with you. I'm the God you've got. I will always be the God you got. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I stand above everything that is, and I am present with you. This is God saying, you're my people, and I'm going to be there with you. And I hear that. I think, okay, this is a God who promised his presence with his people. 
And that speaks to us. We need the presence of God just as desperately as these ancient people of Israel and Moses himself needed God's presence. And as we look at that story, we find that God was present. I mean, it wasn't going to be an easy thing to march into Pharaoh and say, hey, listen, we're leaving. In fact, it would be very difficult at times. But God was still present, and they did leave Egypt, and they did worship at the mountain, and it showed God's presence. And so the lesson for us is to depend on God's presence, to count on God's presence. Whatever's going on, whether it's easy or difficult, to know that God is present in that moment and always will be. And I think about that message to ancient Israel and to Moses and think about, okay, what does that say to us as followers of Jesus now? It's the same God. Now, we don't see that name Yahweh in the New Testament because the Old Testament is in Hebrew, the New Testament is in Greek, and in fact, the Jews began so afraid, became so afraid to speak this name and say it in vain that they almost never said it, but they still knew. That's God's name. And when Jesus comes and he lives among us as a human being, it is Yahweh in the flesh. And it's interesting to me that at the end of Matthew, when Jesus tells his disciples, and in essence tells us, here's my mission for you. Very much like he spoke to Moses. Here's what I want you to do. These are the words that we read right at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28. This is what he says, therefore go. So now go, he told Moses. Therefore go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's what I want you to do. And then he says this, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This same God is making this same promise to us just like he did to Moses. And so today, when we're given this commission, this job to do, just like Moses was, we can count on the presence of this same God just as actively, just as involved as he was in Moses' time among the people of Israel, as he was in the time of the disciples, and as he promises to be now. And so this same Yahweh, this same I am, the same I will be is present in your life and is active in your life and has a call on your life just as he did on Moses. And so today, the message is just the same as it was to Moses. Count on God's presence. Let's pray together. God, we're so thankful that you are present among us. That you are Yahweh, I am, just as you were hundreds of years ago. Just as you were present with Moses and Israel all through their history, you are present today in this room with us and in our lives. So God, fill us with your presence through your spirit and empower us to fulfill the mission that you placed on our lives. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand and continue to worship.